Stefan Diggs is good. Oh, is he good? So good. So good. How good is Stefan Diggs? He was the number five receiver on the depth chart. He's only produced for four games so far. And yet, is top 40 in the league. Think about that. He's top 40 in total fantasy points. And he's number six in fantasy points per game. Number six amongst wide receivers in fantasy points per game. That's where Stephon Diggs is. That's where we're at with him. If you look at just fantasy points per game, he's been more productive than Amari Cooper. He is the best rookie receiver on a per-game basis. He's been better than Amari Cooper. And that's amazing because Amari Cooper has been phenomenal as well. It's mind-blowing. It really is mind-blowing to look at what Stephon Diggs has done. Again, first three games of the season, he doesn't get a snap. He doesn't play at all. First three weeks. Then... Charles Johnson goes out with a broken rib. He comes into the game, suddenly 14.7 fantasy points, then 19.9 fantasy points, then 23.7 fantasy points, and it just escalates. And now he's averaging 19.4 fantasy points per game. That is number sixth in the league among wide receivers. That is equivalent to Odell Beckham Jr. Stephon Diggs is OBJ light. That's who he is. So many articles were written over the summer trying to pinpoint the rookie receiver that was going to have an Odell Beckham Jr.-like season. And the focus was on the hurt rookies, those that missed significant time in the preseason because that's the Odell Beckham Jr. parallel, right? Let's find the rookie that's missing training camp, that's sitting out preseason games, which one of those receivers is the most explosive, and then we'll write an article about him possibly being the next Odell Beckham Jr. That'll be the one-for-one one parallel. And we did that, too, on playerprofiler.com. We wrote articles about Brashad Perriman potentially being the next Odell Beckham Jr., Devontae Parker potentially being the next Odell Beckham Jr., and we weren't alone. But all along, it was Stephon Diggs. It wasn't Devontae Parker. It wasn't Brashad Perriman. And focusing on the receivers that were hurt in preseason was focusing on the wrong sorts of details. What you wanted to look for was precocious talent, and that's what Stephon Diggs has. Stephon Diggs is a precocious talent. He was a precocious talent at Maryland, and we know this because he broke out at age 18.6. He had almost 1,000 receiving yards in his freshman year at Maryland. He arrived on campus as a true freshman, and they said, oh, 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 you're starting. Oh, yes. He's not even... Physically imposing, it's not like he had the body of Demarius Thomas when he arrived at Maryland. Six foot, 195 pounds. He looks like an ordinary receiver. But as soon as he started practicing with the Terrapins, they said, oh boy, okay, we're going to start him. Thank you, yes. And he's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and post almost 1,000 yards in my rookie season. That's when he demonstrated his precociousness. That was telling that early breakout age, that's why we have the breakout age on playerprofiler.com, 96th percentile breakout age, 18.6. Now his college dominator was 36.1, 67th percentile. Do you know who else had a college dominator almost exactly the same as Stephon Diggs? Odell Beckham Jr. That's right. Now Odell Beckham Jr. had better workout metrics across the board. Odell Beckham Jr. has elite burst and agility. Stephon Diggs doesn't have that. The one impressive metric on the workout metrics portion of the Stefan Diggs profile is 40 time. 446 is 73rd percentile. He's fast, but he also understands how to play wide receiver. 
He understands how to run clean routes, and he's strong at the catch point. You have to be to break out as a freshman at Maryland. If he was raw his freshman year at Maryland, dropping passes, running sloppy routes, they would not have installed him as a starter. That's why the breakout age is so important. It's so telling how early the college football teams trust certain receivers. And the Maryland Terrapins trusted Stephon Diggs as a true freshman. Very telling. Now, the anecdotal analysis of Stephon Diggs is that he's a precise route runner, the best route runner on the Vikings. By the way, that's not hard to do when one of your teammates is Mike Wallace, a notoriously awful route runner. Charles Johnson's not known as a great route runner. He has a bad agility score. He came from a small school. That's not how Charles Johnson wins on the football field. He's not a technician. Same with Jarius Wright. Jarius Wright is an after-the-catch monster. He's a yak monster. He's a slot guy and a yak monster. Jarius Wright is not known as being a route-running technician. So Stephon Diggs comes to the Vikings and plays this specific role, clean, precise route runner out of the flanker position, and no one else can do that. So that was something else that Stephon Diggs had going for him, similar to Odell Beckham Jr. in New York. Odell Beckham Jr. in New York's competing against Reuben Randall for touches. And the moment he steps on the field, Odell Beckham Jr. is 10 times the route runner that Reuben Randall is. Also stronger at the catch point than Reuben Randall. So those are some of the same advantages that Stephon Diggs had over the other members of the Vikings receiving core when he arrived on the scene in Minnesota. So we have a precocious talent who fits a need that Minnesota had perfectly. And that's what we like. We always talk about this. You want to stay away from the rookie receivers that are redundant with existing assets in the passing game. They don't fill a necessary role. Therefore, it's hard to project them receiving snaps and targets. Stephon Diggs fills a very necessary role on the Vikings. The trusted possession receiver out of the flanker position. And what have you seen? As he's been thrust into the starting lineup, even before then, 10 targets, 9 targets, 9 targets. He's averaging over 9 targets a game. That's what happens when you're a starting flanker that the quarterback trusts. The starting flanker is most often the target hog on the team, and if you're a great route runner, then you are going to receive a high target share. And already, Stephon Diggs is near the top of the league in target share. His target share on playerprofiler.com is 26.4%, but that includes weeks one through three because he was active on special teams. He just wasn't running any routes. But if you only count weeks four through eight, Stephon Diggs is in the top five in the NFL in target share. He's a target hog, just like Odell Beckham Jr. was last year as soon as he was thrust into the starting lineup in week four. So the parallels between Stephon Diggs and Odell Beckham Jr. are very, very strong. Odell Beckham Jr. came into the league at a very young age, as did Stephon Diggs. Stephon Diggs is only 21.7 years old. He and Amari Cooper are two of the youngest receivers in the league. The three youngest receivers in the league are Amari Cooper, Devin Funchess, and Stephon Diggs. One of them has been a huge disappointment. The other two have been the two best rookie receivers by a wide margin. And even though there are parallels to Odell Beckham Jr., if you're looking for this year's Odell Beckham Jr., it is Stephon Diggs. But his most comparable player is not Odell Beckham Jr. because Stephon Diggs does not have the elite agility and burst as we talked about before. Stephon Diggs' closest parallel 
at the NFL level, his best comparable player is actually Randall Cobb because he offers the same features that the Randall Cobb sports car offers. So when you're looking at the features, you're looking at how much horsepower, the turning radius, leather interior, right? Randall Cobb and Stephon Diggs are almost identical because you have the straight line speed and the trusted route running out of the flanker position because both Stephon Diggs and Randall Cobb are the prototypical smaller NFL flankers. But neither Diggs nor Cobb have great burster agility. They win with great straight line speed and technique. And they're both very strong at the catch point. They have good hands. So you combine those features together, you have a great NFL receiver. You have a trusted target hog flanker at the NFL level. That's Stephon Diggs. That's Randall Cobb. And that's also Odell Beckham Jr. So that's why on the dynasty rankings on playerprofiler.com, we have Stephon Diggs number two just behind Amari Cooper. But now ahead of... Devontae Parker, Brashad Perriman, Doyle Green-Beckham, because it's all there on the profile, who Stephon Diggs is. We now know it. He's 21.7 years old. He's a guy that you do want to bend your will to try to acquire in Dynasty. Absolutely. And those Dynasty rankings will be updated later in the week, so be on the lookout on playerprofiler.com. Contact the show at Roto Underworld on Twitter or email us rotounderworld at gmail.com. Now, before we get into anything else, I've always said that on Tuesday or Wednesday, I promise that I will provide you with a top five targets on the waiver wire. And I'll do better than that. I'll give you seven. The number one is D'Angelo Williams. That's pretty obvious. If you listen to the Football Die Hard show that I do, we're now doing the Football Die Hard show on Tuesdays and Fridays, and we're doing the Roto Underworld show on Wednesdays and Thursdays. In the second half of the season, we wind it back from five shows a week to four shows a week. That's just understandable. So go back and listen to yesterday's Football Diehards podcast to hear my full analysis of D'Angelo Williams and Jeremy Langford. They are one-two. Number one, D'Angelo Williams. Number two, Jeremy Langford. Pretty self-explanatory that these two are going to be bell cow running backs, one for the full season, one temporarily, but both incredibly attractive targets on the waiver wire. Number three is going to be Kamar Aiken because he will be the number one wide receiver on the Ravens when they come out of their bye in week 10. Number four is Marquez Wilson because he will be the number two receiver for the Bears, and the Bears have a great matchup against San Diego this week. And number four is a dark horse, Trey Williams. He was just signed by Dallas, and I believe he has a great PPR back profile. He's got great agility, and he will be someone that's used in the passing game. And I believe that the reason why Dallas signed Trey Williams as opposed to another running back that was on a practice squad, like, for example, Terrell Watson or Gus Johnson, the guy that Dallas had in camp this summer, I believe Dallas targeted Trey Williams because they were looking for a running back to fill that Lance Dunbar role now that Darren McFadden is the early down back. So Williams, Langford, Aiken, Wilson, and Trey Williams. Those are my top five. Couple more bonus ads. First one is Clive Walford. If you're looking for a tight end, I believe Clive Walford is a good target because he is now significantly outsnapping Mikel Rivera. But he was outsnapped last week by Lee Smith. And I believe that happened because the Raiders went out to a big lead. They were leaning on a lead. They were running the ball in the second half and they wanted the run blocking tight end in the game. That's why Lee Smith outsnapped 
Clive Walford. But I think in games where the Raiders are behind, and I think there's a good chance the Raiders will be playing from behind at Pittsburgh this week, then Clive Walford will be in the game a lot more, and I believe he'll start to absorb targets and start to be a trusted receiving tight end for Derek Carr. Derek Carr is ascending, and I think Clive Walford will start a mini ascent along with him in the weeks ahead. I also like Kenny Stills. I see Kenny Stills on a lot of waiver wires, and I think Kenny Stills has established himself as the number three receiver. However, on the Dolphins, I'm not overly excited about the receivers ahead of Kenny Stills. You know I'm not excited about Jarvis Landry. Blech. I'm a little more excited about Rashard Matthews than I am Jarvis Landry, but neither Rashard Matthews nor Jarvis Landry offer the explosive athleticism. So really, other than Jordan Cameron, Kenny Stills is the other guy in the Dolphins passing game that's capable of explosive plays. And the new Dolphins coaching staff has played Stills at a higher snap share, and Kenny Stills' target share has increased since Dan Campbell took over, and I believe that's going to continue. And so that's why I'm rostering Kenny Stills, and he's a nice target in tournament play. DFS GPPs, you can throw a flyer on Kenny Stills, and he might have a boom week with a long touchdown. So those are my top seven waiver wire ads. Want to get that out of the way. And on the Monday night broadcast, I saw an interesting statistic. A little nugget for you today. We'll do a little nugget. We'll do a little mix and match. Lots of different content today on the Roto Underworld radio show. A little nugget on the broadcast. Greg Olson is the only skill position player to play every snap so far this season. That's fairly amazing that he is the only one. Last season, there were a number of players at this point in the season, skill position players, non-quarterback skill position players, that had played every snap. But the sport is getting more violent, and now we're down to one player. Only one player is left that has played every snap, and that is Greg Olson. Greg Olson is a fantastic tight end. He's a guy I've been targeting. If I couldn't get Travis Kelsey... I was targeting Greg Olson because I fully expect Greg Olson, particularly in Dynasty, I own Greg Olson in almost every Dynasty League team because I expect him to be a tight end one until he's age 35 because he was very lightly used early in his career in Chicago. So there isn't the same wear on the tire with Greg Olson that you see with some other tight ends. So I believe that will elongate his career, and he looks like one of these Jason Witten-type tight ends that can be productive out to his mid-30s. And so he's very easy to acquire in Dynasty based on his age, but he has a number of tight end one quality years left in him. Now, this is the year of the old man, and so that's also part of my my thinking with Greg Olson is I've changed my assumptions about age a little bit. I've noticed that a lot more of these older players are producing well into their mid-30s. This year in particular, it's been quite noticeable, the year of the old man. And we had a buzzard write in. Are you going to address the reason behind your year of the old man? All of these guys are drenched in HGH. Bruh. Bruh. Comma space bruh at the end. You had to do that, didn't you? You had a perfectly concise, well-articulated buzzard message. And then you hit me with the comma space bruh at the end. Br. U-H. Bruh. Isn't it bro? How did it, how did bro become bruh? Bruh. Bruh. The sports caveman. We do that purposefully. We want to be known as the Neanderthal sports fan. We seek it out. This is the identity that we are carving out for ourselves. We can't say bro. No. Bro is too clean and straightforward and polished. We gotta, we gotta dirty it up a little bit. We gotta make it more crude. We're gonna go bruh. Football bruh. But what is, what is this buzzer really talking about? I mean, are you kidding me? 
You think NFL players use HGH? What are you talking about? Why would an NFL player use HGH? Think about it. Contact the show at Roto Underworld on Twitter. Email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com. Why would an NFL player think about taking HGH? Why would they even consider it, much less actually do it? Does HGH make NFL players stronger and faster? Is that important on the football field? Is it? Really? Does it slow the effects of aging at all? HGH, does it, do, does it help with that at all? I don't know. Maybe. No? Does it help speed up the body's healing process? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of does, doesn't it? Yeah. If I told you 80% of NFL players are on HGH and only a handful make egregious errors by getting caught like Antonio Gates, would that surprise you? Contact the show if that would surprise you. If I had to recklessly speculate, if I was forced to gamble away my personal fortune, make that the stakes in this bet, would I bet that Gary Barnage, James Jones, Chris Johnson, Steve Smith, D'Angelo Williams, Frank Gore, Peyton Manning, would I bet that all of those NFL players, NFL players that are at the tail end of their career, hanging on to the last thread of NFL experience, would I bet my personal fortune that those types of players are using human growth hormone? Of course I would. <laughs> yes. If I had to bet my personal fortune, those players I listed, absolutely. I would bet every single one of them is using human growth hormone in order to get on the field and be productive. Why not? The alternative is being released from the league anyway and going out and doing something else with your life where the fans aren't cheering your name and wearing your jersey in the stands. Do you want that? Do you want to make millions of dollars and have children line up wearing your jersey? Or do you want to go work at UPS? And if the difference between being on an NFL field and experiencing that and driving a UPS truck and experiencing that, if the difference is taking HGH or not taking HGH, what would you do? I would take HGH. Chris Johnson is definitely taking HGH. That I know for a fact. That I'll report as fact. That's not reckless speculation. Chris Johnson is absolutely on HGH. We can write that one down. We're going to write that one down on our for our record, our little record-keeping binder that we have, all the things I've said on the record. I've, I'll say on the record, Chris Johnson is on HGH. Whether he ever gets caught or not, who knows? HGH is a weird one, though, because I think it should be legal for players, at the very least, who are dealing with injuries. They should be able to legally take HGH because of its healing properties. But then, where's the line? Because players will start using it for performance enhancing, obviously. But for example, I think Devontae Parker should be able to take HGH to help with his foot. It would help his foot heal. But if they're going to let Devontae Parker take HGH, they shouldn't allow him to play. They should have to put him on some sort of short-term HGH IR. And what is up with Devontae Parker? I saw some news about Devontae Parker that even though he was carted off with a sore foot in Week 8, that they think he's going to play this week. The reporters around the Dolphins think he will play. That it's a scar tissue issue. This is what I read. Devontae Parker said the following, I was feeling a little pain, but not severe. It might hurt for a couple days, nothing serious. Then Dan Campbell thunders in, of course, and said that he expects the rookie to play. Why? Why are you playing him? He's not getting snaps anyway. The number three receiver is Kenny Stills. The number four receiver is Greg Jennings. Why are you making him active? Why are you asking him to practice on a broken foot or a sore foot? Why are you doing that? What is the point? 
What is the point of doing this exercise? Forcing guys to play hurt that are your number one draft pick. Other than Ryan Tannehill and Ndamukong Sue, the most precious asset on the Dolphins is Devontae Parker. And that's the guy that you're going to have suit up on Sunday, even though he won't be playing. That's the guy you're going to force to go through limited practices, even though he's experiencing another recurrence of foot pain. What is wrong with this league, man? So while I say, sure, I'd love to see in a perfect world, injured players be able to use HGH. I don't trust the league to create a, a system that would allow HGH to be used without it being misused by both the players and the coaches and the doctors. Because look at what's happening in the NFL right now. The violence is already escalating. The last thing we need is for these players to be yet bigger, yet stronger, yet faster. You know how I know that the violence is escalating? Even if there's no violence meter when you're watching the Red Zone channel? You know how I can tell that the violence is escalating? That the collisions are becoming more severe? Players are going down, limping off the field, after plays that I can't even tell were vicious. You have some innocuous looking plays, to me, to the untrained eye, but then you see the player limping off. You see the player writhing on the ground, and... You have to see the replay to really appreciate how violent the collision was. So now, it used to be that when a huge collision happened that would cause an injury, it was apparent. But now it's not. Now, standard issue NFL tackles are breaking guys' legs. Think about that. Go back and look at the Kyrie Robinson injury. That was a standard issue NFL tackle. Snapped his leg into. The violence is escalating. And it's... It's ramping up this moral conundrum that I've been feeling. We did a show called The NFL as Roman Holiday. Go back and listen to it. It's actually also on the Roto Underworld Radio highlight channel on YouTube. So you go to YouTube, type in Roto Underworld Radio, and you can see the highlights. And one of them is NFL as Roman Holiday. I did a whole show on the moral conundrum that is the NFL. We are watching Bloodsport. We are watching Gladiators literally destroy their bodies in front of us for our entertainment. And if that doesn't create a moral conundrum inside you, we don't share sensibilities because that one I think is pretty obvious. There has to be a level of cognitive dissonance that's going on with individuals that will claim that they don't feel any moral conundrum while watching the NFL. Because on Sunday, I had to turn the Red Zone channel off while the producers were searching for games with action because all the games were stopped with players writhing around, twitching on the ground, waiting for electric carts to come and haul them off to the locker room. They kept flashing from game to game. Couldn't find any action because that's the NFL Red Zone's secret, right? The moment that a player is injured, they flash to the next game. There was this point in time on Sunday where they kept flashing to games and all the games were being stopped because of injuries. And at that point, I just said, you know what? I got to go do some yard work. I... I need to get away from this. And for me, sports and statistics and the NFL is as much an intellectual exercise as it is a visceral one. So missing out on the Red Zone channel on Sunday doesn't negatively impact me, my life, like it does some other hardcore sports fans. But I went and did yard work because, again, these athletes are literally killing themselves for our entertainment. If you want to know what blood sport is, the NFL is blood sport. They have blood all over their jerseys. Keenan Allen had internal bleeding. He's going to miss the rest of the season with a lacerated kidney. He was bleeding on the inside. You just couldn't see it on his jersey. And then there's all the 
head trauma that we don't see. We watch the collisions, but we don't see the, the capillaries and the brain popping. And we recoil from the broken legs. Those make us recoil. Those make us want to turn the channel. But it's the collisions to the head, the head trauma that's really cutting these lives short because broken bones will heal and they won't impact your lifespan. One concussion after another concussion after another concussion will cut your life short. Bones heal better than brains. And so that's also part of my thought process while I'm watching these collisions. I wince seeing the ACL snap, but also when the two defenders collide when they're trying to make a tackle. I, the worst is when an evasive offensive player evades the tackle and then the, the two defenders collide head on. Oh, that makes me wince every time. But now we're seeing it's not just the players at risk. Jeremiah Ratliff was cut by the Bears earlier this year. And these NFL teams, they have security at the facility that escorts the released players out because these released players are in a desperate place. They're hugely demoralized. If you get fired from your job, you're not in the right state of mind. You start to panic. You start to make bad decisions. So they have security on site when they cut players. Well, the Bears cut Jeremiah Ratliff and they felt the security they had on hand wasn't enough. They had to call the police to come in and help escort that player out. He was talking about killing everyone and their children. And you have to wonder, why? Why these extremes? The Chiefs' Javon Belcher shot himself in the parking lot. Why? Junior Seau killed himself. I mean, how many NFL players every year do you hear killing themselves? And then a lot more have claimed thoughts of suicide and are in counseling because of it. How many documentaries are there? There's a documentary out there right now that was just released about the NFL. I'll take it a step further. How many Ray Carruths and how many Aaron Hernandez archetypes exist in the NBA or the major leagues? Soccer, baseball, these other sports. How many times do you hear about a professional soccer player secretly being a mass murderer or chopping up his wife and putting her in his trunk? This is a problem that is specific to the NFL. I don't understand it. I don't claim to understand why all of these players seem to have their brains scrambled, but it makes sense. It makes intuitive sense. You put one guy across from the other guy, they smash heads for 70 plays in a row. Yeah, it makes sense that their brains are going to be scrambled by this exercise. The NFL tears people's bodies apart, their arms, their legs, their brains, and their inner organs. See Keenan Allen. There will be a death on the field. We've talked about this on the NFL as Roman Holiday show. I talked about this is coming. The question is, will it be a player that any of us have heard of or not? If Tom Brady dies, that is going to have a much bigger impact on the popularity of the sport than if special teamer X dies. But I don't even know. I don't even know if the death of, of one of our elite quarterbacks, one of the faces of a franchise, I don't even know if how much that would impact the popularity of the sport. It's crazy to think how popular the sport is, how bulletproof the perception of the sport is, and the ratings on Sundays are. It's fair to wonder whether the death of a Peyton Manning or a Drew Brees, how much that would actually impact ratings. But I think the more you watch, especially if you were watching in week eight, which was, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but... I have never experienced a week like week eight with that number of injuries across the board, both high-profile players and lesser-known players. So I'm more sure than I ever have been that there will be a death on the field, and I think how it's going to happen is the way Keenan Allen was hurt. 
That's what I predict. If I had to predict the way a player is going to die on the field, it will be via internal bleeding because they didn't know what was wrong with Keenan Allen at first. They thought it was a sore back, but he was debilitated. He couldn't play. It was definitely more than a sore back, but they couldn't figure it out until he got to the hospital. So when there is a violent collision and it's apparent where the damage is, doctors are on hand. Ambulances are there. The player will survive. The problem is if a player suffers some sort of internal bleeding that can't be diagnosed on site, that player is at a much greater risk of death. And so that's how I think it might happen. But it will happen. And it's sad and it's crazy and it's just, it makes me conflicted. Talking about it makes me, it, it upsets me because I've invested so much of my time and my resources, my effort, both physical and mental, everything, Investing in playerprofiler.com, Roto Underworld Radio, this is all a football-centric enterprise. And yet, it is all built on this a superstructure that's above this sport, which is blood sport. And it's just the greatest moral conundrum I've ever experienced. And the moral conundrum is deepening when you hear about this Jeremiah Ratliff situation. Because you could say, well, the players are signing away their health in a written contract in exchange for millions of dollars. So that's how I rationalize my love of the NFL. And that's fine. But the brain trauma is now putting colleagues at risk, families at risk. Domestic violence percentage among NFL athletes is higher than other sports. Why is that? Their brains are scrambled. That's just it. It's that simple. Their heads are colliding, play after play after play, and it's scrambling their brain. It's quite intuitive when you think about it. But it's not just the players that are at risk anymore when you start to see violent behavior off the field. The moral conundrum deepens even farther. And it's the brain trauma piece, by the way, that would and could end the sport. If the sport ends, if the sport goes away, it will be because of brain trauma, not broken legs. Because it's the brain trauma that's making parents and schools reconsider youth participation in football. The death toll among high school football players is over five now, just this season. And if the youth stop playing the sport, it will become a sport played by the most desperate people in our society. Choosing football will be the equivalent of a kid choosing to deal drugs instead of going to high school. I mean, will that even matter, though? Will that kill the sport? I don't know if that will kill the sport. It'll certainly throttle its popularity. But even if the youth stop playing football, and the prison system becomes the NFL's minor league system, will the sport go on? I don't know. The way the ratings are right now, the way the attendance numbers are right now, the way the sponsorship dollars are right now, I can't envision a fictional scenario in which the sport goes away. Even if it's played exclusively by prisoners, I can't see the sport going away, given its popularity where I sit at this moment in time. I mean, look at Steve Smith. You know this sport has a long-term future when you look at Steve Smith. He is the personification of hissing, rage, and defiance. And yet, he's characterized in the media as feisty, right? Steve Smith broke a teammate's orbital bone. Steve Smith once compelled an opponent to spit in his face on multiple occasions. Steve Smith has tried to fight members of the media. If you go to Google and type in Steve Smith and fight, you get 50 million results. If you type in Steve Smith and asshole, you get 500,000 search results. There is a website called the Steve Smith is a prick forum. 
It seems like years ago. It was years ago, but it seems so far away in the distant past when the Miami Dolphins had a bullying scandal and the media was outraged by the bullying. And now here we are, the biggest bully in NFL history, Steve Smith, goes down with a torn Achilles and there is an outpouring of nostalgia-soaked kindness and condolences on Twitter. But the irony is that Steve Smith can't read these well wishes on Twitter because he claims to have shut down his Twitter account because he will, quote, kill someone. He shut down his Twitter because he said, I'm going to kill someone who trolls me. He was worried about killing a troll, so he shut down his Twitter account. And this is the guy we're supposed to genuflect in front of now. Steve Smith goes down with a torn Achilles, and on the Red Zone channel, they made an exception. Instead of going to another game, they held the camera angle so the audience could watch his Achilles snap over and over again, compelling us to genuflect before this asshole. Feel his pain. You know who else tore his Achilles? Arian Foster. He stands for mindfulness and kindness. He's the type of player that would never play the NFL in this fictional world that we've created where only bad guys play the NFL. That NFL doesn't have a place for Arian Foster. But when Arian Foster tears his Achilles, they don't hold the camera on him. He is the thoughtful, nonviolent sportsman role model. Steve Smith, on the other hand, is a window into the cruel and menacing character that the NFL is creating more and more often. And you know the NFL has a future because that's the character that's being celebrated, not Arian Foster's character. Arian Foster's injury was met with muted condolences. Oh, you should have known better than to draft Arian Foster on your fantasy team. He can't stay healthy. Oh, but the expired Steve Smith, rage-soaked Steve Smith, he's the one that deserves your pity. Get out of here.